Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 87, recorded on November 12th, 2019. And uh, this is this is probably my favorite hour, hour and a half or so of the week, uh, where I get to spend the whole week reading about photography news, and now I get to opine about it with a, a good friend, guest host of mine. Um, this week is uh, probably the, the MVP of the Photo Geek Weekly podcast. Uh, Steve Brazel rejoins the show to talk about all things photo geekery, anything that I could come up with in the news cycle that I know uh, my guest and I can uh, you know, totally dig into and have some fun, some banter, some back and forth about. And so here we are, Steve. Welcome back to the show. How are you, my friend? I am great. Uh, you know, I, I've been, I spent yesterday and part of today photographing snowflakes, which is one of the things that I do during See, the winter. See, now I feel bad. I've got and 80 degrees down here. I know. And it's, it's going down to minus 15 Celsius tonight. And, you know, it's, uh, it's like, I'm going to get up in the morning and I might try to do some freezing soap bubbles or something because that's about the perfect conditions. And we just redid our, uh, our sunroom, uh, with renovations where we pulled out all of the insulation and put in an industrial exhaust fan, uh, so that I can take that room that normally would get some ambient heat from the house and be too warm. And I can open the doors and turn on that fan. And I'm hoping that within five or 10 minutes, it is exactly the same temperature as the outside air completely and fully so that I can do freezing soap bubbles when it's cold enough, but it might be windy outside, which would be a no-no for that kind of a subject. Right. So I'm looking forward to to seeing how that all plays out. But I do want to take a, a quick kind of step back. We're recording one day after uh, Remembrance Day or Veterans Day in the U.S. And I just Correct. want to uh, to state, you know, my, uh, my respect for all of the people that have served uh, any country, really, for the greater good of society. Uh, I mean, Canadians and Americans and, of course, the world wars and so many conflicts afterwards uh, that have given their time, efforts, energies, uh, you know, succumb to injuries or, you know, given the ultimate sacrifice to have us talk about photography freely in a free society today. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of unsung heroes there that their stories never get told. And if you know anybody or even if you don't, I have no family members that have served, uh, at least no one close to me. And so I, I think to myself how lucky I am to be distanced from all of that and to uh, to be here uh, as a creative, as an artist that can perform that work in a free society. So thank you to everybody uh, that has served. Uh, it does not go unnoticed. And, and I will echo all of that. My father was a, a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, and most of the Western world are volunteer military branches, whether it be Air Force, Army, Marines, Coast Guard, or whatever your country has. <clears throat> and so these are people who really honestly see the greater good. And uh, so I echo that. Uh, thank well, you very, very much for your service. And I, I want to say people that didn't officially serve too. I mean, my wife is originally from Bulgaria and many people might not realize that Bulgaria was an Axis country in World War II. They were a, a puppet of, of, of Germany. And uh, there's monuments uh, uh, that, that you can clearly see up today that say that, you know, that the people, whether they were uh, civilians or of some level of military, either the military turned a blind eye, the civilians brought in the Jews and made sure that they were that safe and secured. And there was a, a very strong number of people uh, within that umbrella that were doing the right thing in very, very hard circumstances. So I don't want to be so heavy about this show, but I have an utmost respect for those people on either side of the table of any conflict that are doing the right thing uh, for their fellow man. So uh, thank you to everybody. Now, Steve. I agree. 
um, let's, uh, let's, you know, what, what's new with you? I, I, I think that, uh, that there might be a, a new show coming out soon. Well, we just, right before we are recording this, you and I took what was going to be, yeah, 30, 45 minutes to do our first image critique show. And it went an hour and 15 <clears throat> and I absolutely loved it. It will probably go live. I'm sitting here looking at my dates right now in the calendar as I'm as I'm thinking about this. It'll probably go live around the 14th of November. So if you're listening to this after that, uh, you can find it on the Behind the Shot YouTube channel. Uh, it's only going to be the, the critique shows are only going to be on the YouTube channel. The regular Behind the Shot show is available in your favorite podcast app as either video or audio. But you can still find the uh, the links to the YouTube videos at BehindTheShot.tv. Yeah, correct? everything will be on the website, BehindTheShot.tv. That is correct. All right. Uh, well, with all that said, and uh, a good nod to uh, the, the men and women in uniform uh, and others that are making differences in the world, let's get into our stories for the day. Um uh, Panasonic is a sponsor of mine, and the reason why they are a sponsor is not because they uh, they approached me uh, out of the blue. I had actually asked them uh, to borrow a, a Lumix GX5 at one point, and uh, they loaned me one for a trip. And then I really fell in love with the brand with the GX9, the much smaller compact uh, travel camera. And when I was shooting with that for just about a year, during that time, they said, Don, we love your work. If you love our equipment, uh, would you like to be sponsored? And I said, yes. And so I, my opinion is biased of, of Panasonic because they, they are a sponsor of mine. But I'm looking at right now the first story that we have here. Uh, Panasonic firmware adds to GH5, GH5S, G9, S1, and S1R. And the kicker here is including G9 Video Boost. So there are some uh, notes within this list here that don't apply to everybody, like expanded compatibility with Profoto wireless transmitters. Don't use those for those that do. Well, congratulations. You've got better functionality. That's with the S1 and uh, the S1R. Um, they also have within here uh, improved performance of high-speed video. Uh, they have other improvements, which in some cases... When I'm looking at um, the GH5, GH5S, they have um, autofocus improvements because you know that there's AI built into a lot of this now more than there used to be. Um, and the improvements for autofocus, I think, are going to continuously improve. So if you're trying to take pictures of animal faces like your dog, it's going to detect that much better than it used to. Uh, I don't want to get into all the weeds of every single uh, adjustment here, but Steve, to you... Is it the same thing as it was to me that the enhanced video functions of the GH9 really stood out as something unexpected? The the well, <clears throat> there's a couple things in here I think are important. First, I gotta say, is it me or does it seem like Panasonic is much more active than some of the other major brands out there on releasing firmware updates that actually add value to products, including older products? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure everybody's doing it to some degree, but they always have different motives. I think that Panasonic by and large just finds a new feature and that they realize that they can improve the appeal of everything across their entire product catalog. And they do that. And they're willing to do it. And, and I'm sorry, I don't think, and I'm not sponsored by Panasonic. I'm not biased in that way. I'm a Canon shooter. I don't see Canon adding those types of features to older cameras. To me, the pro photo thing, you mentioned that, that, all of these brand models get pro photo wireless transmitter support. And I actually think 
that that's actually important even though I wouldn't use it. And here's why. Profoto is a high-end, pro-level lighting system. Average people that just want to buy a speed light aren't using Profoto. So this is Panasonic putting up a flag saying we are going to support professional wireless transmitter support for professional lighting. And I think that's actually an important flag. And then you get this video support and the G9 got stuff that, I mean, to me is, is next level 10 bit. Well, I two, two. Yeah. It's the same stuff that the GH5. Yeah. I mean, really you don't need to read the specs. It's the same things, but if you got a G9, you got some cool stuff now. You do, and it, it's interesting because I I look at the camera manufacturers that always uh, they they put up walls to say that yes we've got the hardware here but we're going to feature limit it because we need to have market segmentation. Correct. Every company does this, um, and to say that okay the G nine you know what we don't really need to have that wall as as thick as it was in the past because the people that are shooting with that they might want to have these fun video features but. If you are serious about video, well, maybe you want to have the the XLR adapter that Panasonic offers. It's not hardware compatible with the G9. It's only compatible with the GH5, GH5S, and, and the S1, S1R, and, of course, the S1H that's uh, soon to come. So, you know, it, it's not going to give you the full uh, hardware feature set. There are still some limitations. I don't know. I haven't done a direct comparison to exactly what ports each of those cameras natively have. I'm going to guess that the GH5 has some a little bit more centric to video, like a headphone port or something of that nature. Again, I, I didn't look at these specs beforehand. But, but I am and I talked about less this, prepared. You, but. you and I talked about this the last time we were on the show. It's a firm belief of mine that the most differentiation and segmentation should be hardware, not software. Once you write software, there's no valid reason that you can give me not to just use that software. And so well, and when Canon- you start intentionally crippling things, especially since now, what does this tell you about the G9? It's got hardware that supports all of this and did all along. Right. Well, and Canon famously came out, and we talked about this recently on, on the show, um, and they crippled video output to remove 24p recording for no reason other than to just make the cameras that did record 24p right. more palatable to those that wanted. And I think that's totally the wrong thing to do. But there is a value uh, to have some level of market segmentation. You buy an entry-level camera, the the hardware, the processor, as it was engineered, might be capable of far more than a $500 camera on the market would ever do because they want to put some things behind effectively a paywall. I get that. I understand that. Um, but at the same time, to have a camera that was decidedly an exceptional stills camera, I don't re- recall many people clamoring over the G9 to have even better video features. You had the GH5 for that. Um, but now that the G9 has these full functioning uh, 422 10-bit um, uh, in, in incredible resolution. So you got 4K uh, 30p and, uh, and 4K 60p uh, just uh, through HDMI only on, on the 60p. Right. So you'd have to have an external 60p, recorder yeah. for that. Right. Uh, yeah, if you're in but Europe, it, but, but the variable the frame standards. rate on Panasonic is interesting, up to 180 frames per second. And here's going back to this differentiation on the software thing. It's the only company I really know of that does this well. The GH5 has a paid software upgrade that you can get, right? So you for, can for the, pay the log, yeah. to get VLOG L or waveform monitoring. 
Now, that says to me, I may include it on the GH5, but I'm not going to include it on the on the G9, but I'm going to let you buy it, right? Actually, it, it is a paid-for feature on the GH5 as well. What it I'm saying, always- though, I'm just saying that from a point of view of if you're going to limit software, don't cripple it and say you can't have it. Make it available yeah. to me as an upgrade, and if I'm willing to pay for it, I pay for it. You know, even if I had no use uh, for the Vlog L recording on the G9, having a waveform monitor, exactly, uh, I think it could be very useful. Even if I'm not recording in Vlog, uh, it, it's uh, everybody that I've talked to. Uh, you know, uh, Jordan Drake, who's a, another uh, guest host on this podcast, I love uh, his and- new videos. Uh, and and with Chris Nichols on uh, DP Review TV, if you haven't checked those guys out, check out DP Review TV. Uh, their videos are both incredibly educational, but also humorous as well. And the production quality is cranked up to 11. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that I have a connection with those folks. But uh, I learned from them the value of the waveform monitor being so much more... Uh, uh, I, I don't want to say intuitive, but uh, information presenting than a standard histogram that is basically just a tally chart. Right. And, and that's all it will ever be. A waveform monitor takes that tally chart and applies it to the context of the image, uh, which is incredibly useful. And I wish every stills camera had it. Now the G9 will. There's no clear indication whether or not it would be available only in video shooting mode modes or if you could uh, bring it up in stills but regardless to have it there at all i think is a step in the right direction what let's go to the full frame stuff because you shoot sure do you shoot an s1 or an s1r i have them both actually okay. i just uh, i've picked up an s1 that is uh, away being converted to full spectrum photography but my workhorse right now is an s1r and there was a big uh I, we knew it was coming, but it's now going to be in the next firmware update that it will be compatible with the CF Express card format. Are you familiar with the difference between that and XQD card, Steve? Yeah, it's faster, like 300% faster. But my question to you is based on what you shoot, I can see for certain people, sports photographers will love that. Uh, high quality video recording people will love that. For what you shoot, does that help you? Oh, does it ever? Um, so when I'm shooting rapid fire sequences in macro photography for focus stacking or just to get the right focus on a very uh, chaotic subject, you know, following an insect around or something, um, you're at your fastest continuous shooting mode and you want to offload that data th- to the card as fast as possible. And even now, like I-, I shot exceptionally well with the S1 for Snowflakes last winter uh, because it could it could uh, funnel that data to the memory card fast enough, but it was a 24 megapixel camera versus the 47 on the S1R. And so there becomes a bottleneck in how fast you can bring that data to the card. Right. And that, that I hit that bottleneck before I'm ready for it. And it's fine. I mean, I can kind of zen out and kind of slow my breathing down, wait for the buffer to, to empty and do my second set of my, my shots. I, I started shooting snowflakes with a Canon 5D Mark II, which was 3.9 frames per second and hit the uh, the buffer after like 10 shots. So, I mean, it's not that I'm a stranger to doing that. And I could shoot it very easily at a lower resolution, but I want to get the best of the best. And so now um, the CF Express cards, they are pinout and format identical to the XQD cards. At least the Type B cards are. They have a few different varieties. So with that said, you could just now plug in uh, a CF Express card. It'll understand once you have this firmware update, it'll, it'll understand the protocol that that card communicates at. 
and will allow you to uh, to use the NVMe protocol base that you know was established with computer hard drives or you know, SSDs. Uh, that uh, basically, just by changing the protocol and how things communicate, can as much as triple or quadruple out the gate the the bandwidth that you have available to you. And that's not saying that the um, that the memory card. Uh, will still be the bottleneck. The bottleneck might be the processor uh, in order to funnel the data because it was never designed to push that much right. data. So may, you might not get a three or four times increase in data throughput, but even if you get a 50% increase, to have that available to somebody after they've bought a camera, uh, we've never heard of that. Before. No, it's a worthwhile upgrade. The other thing I think is big is I'm, I, I don't know about you, but for the longest time, I was the the type of photographer that, look, I'm only going to use manufacturer lenses because in those days, the quality control was different. I had a good shot if I bought a Canon lens or if you bought a Nikon lens of getting a lens that was right out of the factory. And if you got a Tamron or a Sigma lens, a third party lens, as it were, there was always that, did you get a good one, right? Did you get a good one from a good batch? Sigma with their art series lenses has really changed that equation completely. Oh, they have basically said, okay, we are a first party player with third party prices. Oh, I mean, the, the art series glass is nothing shy of fantastic. And they're giving you now better Sigma support. So Sigma has function buttons. Those are available to you now. You get better uh, in-body sta- uh, image stabilization support. So... Again, I'm looking at this going, I don't know of another camera manufacturer other than Panasonic that would have retroactively increased the value of a body. Well, I think this is the mentality that everybody should embrace moving forward. Uh, we, we see that uh, with certain automakers. I mean, I, I had a firmware update for my car today that gave me 5% in por- uh, performance boost because Tesla figured out how to work the motors better. Yeah, that's um, Tesla, though. That's an unusual one. Well, sure. But what I'm saying is that um, wouldn't it be great if our uh, we also have a Toyota RAV4 if and it's a hybrid if they said, yeah, hey, we, we, we've, you know, improved the uh, the regenerative braking technology because we figured out a better way to program that. And all of a sudden that vehicle is more efficient. They just don't do it. I, there's no reason why any manufacturer of any electronics and, you know, bump uh, automobiles into that because they are these days. Um cannot be doing something to improve the experience after somebody has purchased something. And the more that you improve that experience, number one, that leads to, uh, you know, customer retention, they're going to stay with that brand, because they know that any future investment from their dollar value is going to translate into uh, a, a, a better kept uh, product over the, the life cycle of it. But I also wonder too, and, and I, while Panasonic sponsors me, I have no uh, inside knowledge of, of what's really coming from them. Um, to add those features to the G9, it makes me wonder what the GH6 or whatever the successor to the GH5 will be, whatever they call it, will have, because there's definitely going to have to be some product differentiation there. Right. They're preparing the G9 to, to be, uh, you know, to be every bit as good in terms of the, the file quality. So it, it'll be very interesting to see whatever the, uh, the successor to the GH5 and the GH5S will, will become. Um, 
this this is interesting times as a as a photographer what was it um it was epson had a camera way back when it had actually a manual shuttercock on a digital camera it was a really fun bit of technology that they had but when they wanted to issue a firmware update they couldn't do it because firmware updates at the time didn't exist so to do it they had to release a new version of the same camera with different software with a different model number and everything else uh, and they did that but uh We've had firmware updates forever. So to offer new functionality to older cameras, Sony has been a uh, proponent of this as mm-hmm. well. Of course, we've seen so many updates, especially to testbed uh, platforms like the A9. I hope that this becomes the universal standard. And that basically puts the writing on the wall that if Sony and Panasonic, as we're seeing here, can do this, what is the excuse that Nikon and Canon have? The old guards. Um, That's the $64,000 question, and I don't see an answer coming to it soon. uh, They're going to fade away into antiquity if they cannot keep up with this pace of giving it away to people that are already indoctrinated into your platform. I I see Canon and Nikon nowadays kind of like I used to see the music industry where, you know, music executives – we're on record as basically saying, look, I understand that the way our business model is dying. I understand it's going to change, but not on my watch. I'm not going to be the one responsible for taking us down that path if it fails. And that's kind of where I see Canon and Nikon now is there. And, and news outlets are the same way where modern news came in and some of them couldn't pivot. And I'm almost seeing that in Canon and Nikon now where they're stuck in their ways. They believe that they've got this foothold and can defend it. But Panasonic and Sony and and companies like that are challenging them and they need to have, they need to pivot quicker. They do. Uh, and maybe that's counterculture to traditional Japanese companies. But uh, you, you look at a lot of these companies, the, the industry um, on large right now is on a downturn in, turn, in terms of sales. Yes. And, and I think that has to do partly because of smartphones, but also uh, very importantly, the fact that so many new platforms just jumped onto the scene all at once. And people want them to mature before they make their investment into the next product. Because previously, when a brand new camera would come out on the platform that you already uh, have bought into, you would buy into that right away if the timing was uh, was adequate and your budget was there. But now, even if the timing and budget are there, you don't know exactly how that platform is going to fully take shape. Um, and so people are sometimes kind of sitting on their wallet and waiting a little bit just to see how many lenses and, and accessories come out for that platform. To, Agreed. to that end, pan Panasonic announced a 16 to 35 millimeter f4 lens. Their 70 to 200 f2.8. Uh, Sigma has a new art lens in the works, which is also for the L mount. There's a lot of uh, of development within this technology. Uh, you know, filling out the ecosystem. It's not just the bodies; it's the lenses. It's uh, it's all of the uh, extra accoutrements in terms of memory cards that are much faster now. And and so the reason to buy into it, I think, will be fully realized within the next twelve to eighteen months. Well, and that's that, my that prediction. seventy to two hundred two point eight for Panasonic, which is you know one of the 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 trinity of lenses that you want. 24 to 70, 70 to 200, and in my argument, a 16 to 35 as well, although it's F4. But that 70 to 200 is seven stops of IS because it supports the dual IS With, with the in, uh, in-camera stabilization. Right, it supports yeah. all that. Three function buttons on the lens, which is nice. The 16 to 35 had something I'd never seen before. The clutch to switch from autofocus to manual focus is this weird, it's a ring that you pull. Oh, I've seen that on so many lenses. I love it. 
I, I, I much better than a switch. My switches yeah. get hit accidentally all the time. This was interesting yeah. to me. And uh, like I, I have even what was it the uh, the Tamron ninety millimeter macro lens that has a uh, a focus clutch, and I think that if every lens that I buy in the future has a focusing clutch, I would be a very happy person. Yeah, it was I, I'm really intrigued by that. I'd like to try that. I wonder about dust, but I, I I'm intrigued by. It. Well, it's it's an exterior clutch. It's it's shifting a ring on the outside of the lens. It's not actually shifting anything, anything internal inside. that would get uh, that that would get uh, dust into that. So I think it's a pretty uh, a pretty well proven design at this point that just more manufacturers need to adopt. I agree. All right. Well, uh, before we get into our next story, um, a few episodes ago, I had a negative review posted and I read it on the show. And since then, I've had a flood of positive reviews for this podcast. And I want to thank everybody that has done that. But I was saving this one for you, Steve. So um, Uh this is... Uh, th- this is a uh, positive review, uh, a five star on Apple Podcasts. So thank you very much uh, for this review uh, by Ken Lee. It says the geekery here is off the charts, and that's a beautiful thing. Don is very personable, and he seems to be a great guy to hang with. And generally, I am. Uh, I I noticed that there are quite a few reviews comment on on Don talking a lot or not letting his guests talk. He often sets up the next topic and taking a while to do so. Yeah, I do take a while sometimes. Um, I find this interesting, but I can understand why some people might feel like he is not letting his guests talk as much. Also, when he has guests such as Steve Brazel on, he spelled your name as Brazil, by the way. I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, I appreciate it, Ken. (laughs) There is much more give and take. Uh, Some of the guests are less overtly opinionated or maybe quieter and may not uh, get as many words in. But really, the podcast is a high quality one. Always count on it being fascinating. So I'll give it five stars nonetheless. So thank you very much, Ken, for being objective on both sides of the equation and continuing to listen. We appreciate it. And let me throw something in really quick because I know you want to get to the next story, but let me throw something in because I listen to your show when I'm not on and your introductions to me, I like how long they are. And I'll tell you why, because sometimes these things, if I don't get a show notes ahead of time, sometimes these things are something I haven't seen. I don't understand in advance. I might need to do some research on and your descriptions are detailed in a way that you bring me into a knowledge point that what's the word I'm looking for. You bring me into a point of knowledge where I can then relax and enjoy the banter between you and a guest. So I actually like the amount of detail that you give in your introductions. Well, thank you very much, Steve. But all the same, I was going to throw the next story to you. Oh, Adobe wants to authenticate your photos. Uh, What should photographers think? And this is an interesting story because when you look at what Adobe is doing, they announced they just had Adobe Max in LA and everybody was down here for Adobe Max. And I I got to go out and meet Aaron Nace of Flurn. I had lunch with him. And literally everybody was there and they had some really interesting uh, presentations. And one of them was the content authenticity initiative. There's two partners to this, New York Times and Twitter. And I just want you to listen to the name content authentic uh, authenticity initiative. So their idea is that attribution for an image travels with the image And I'm quoting here, allowing customers to know that the content they're seeing is authentic. That's a quote from the Adobe VP, Dana Rao. Here's my problem with this. 
the way that they're structuring it, this is similar to IPTC data. This is metadata, but it's metadata that almost has a history panel to it. So if that metadata is modified or changed, it will track the change. It will track it using an image registry using blockchain. And which is a repository where they'll store the metadata. And here's my problem with this. It's metadata. So when you're storing an image with metadata, okay, the attribution travels with it. Well, my metadata travels with it right now. It's just that it's stripped. And when you're telling me the New York Times, which has their own photographers and they check all their media, they know that they're all right. And Twitter, where's Facebook? Where's Instagram? There's so many repetitions of what we already have in this idea, do you think it's redundant? Well, there's a number of things here. So uh, I want to dial the clock back a little bit. Canon and Nikon both had um, uh, image uh, authentication kits for their uh, flagship cameras for photojournalists back in the day. They were both horribly hacked. Um, you, you could reverse engineer exactly how it was authenticated and modify an image and have right. it re-authenticated. And, um, and so we have been down this road before. It's been one of those things that um, you can even use steganography to modify the least significant bit in an image uh, and hide information within that without it actually being in metadata. And in some cases, you could then tell if the image was modified because that least significant bit would not follow a specific pattern. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about in least significant bits, um, let's say you have a an 8-bit image as a, as a JPEG or uh, even like a 14-bit RAW file. If you modify the last bit, um, then it's going to appear almost as if it's just some very subtle noise within the image, imperceptible. But if that was done so in a way that could encode information, then you can hide information in plain sight. There's lots of ways to do that. Adobe also announced, uh, we've seen this before actually in prototype form, um, but uh, Adobe shows off their AI tool that can detect and undo photo manipulation or Maybe it wasn't Adobe. Maybe it was NVIDIA because they're doing a lot of stuff in that space too. But either way, this technology has existed for a while. It was Adobe. Okay. Um, And so if Adobe can see um, the general noise pattern in a photograph, which, uh, you know, what I would love, Steve, is if I could have a program that I could just like drag and drop a photo or press a keyboard shortcut over an image to have it analyze the noise pattern on a photograph to say yay or nay, uh, to say, okay, well, this looks manipulated because an image has been composited or somebody did the liquify tool or um, did a, a warp or an adjustment that would take that noise pattern, which is a predictable pattern in most cases and has skewed it in some way computationally, we can do that right now. Well, and that's what they showed during their Adobe Sneaks showcase. It's called Project About Face. And it can, it's AI, it detects and can undo photo manipulations. And my problem with their idea that it'll undo it in their demo was amazing, actually. But still, when it analyzes it, it, it figures out where the manipulations were, but the undo doesn't know literally what was done. So even the undo is a modification that's a guess. It, well, I think it's all a guess. And, and I think that even, even us looking at a photograph and believing it to be real today in today's e- economy and society, um, it's a guess. 
and we make our own guesses. And I wish we had stronger tools to make more accurate guesses. I don't think that Adobe will get much success with their uh, their authenticity. They they want it, and I'm glad that a big player is going after this particular goal. Um, but if you don't have complete industry adoption, and that might never happen unless you have some sort of government mandated reason to do it, uh, I think it might have to go to that level to to actually well, make this. And, and here's the make thing. This happen. One of, one of the Adobe officers made a comment that we're, we're creating an industry-wide standard to allow creators to put their mark on their work and have that attribution accompany the pieces it goes across different platforms. But here's the problem. It is illegal if I have a watermark and my image is, is registered for you to knowingly remove my watermark to try and commit copyright infringement. Yeah, it's copyright management information. Exactly. However, if I upload my image to Facebook... They strip all of my metadata, which is where my copyright information is, okay? That's copyright management info. It's not just a watermark. It's that embedded metadata. Their terms of service allow them to do that. All you need to do is make it illegal for them to do that. Just make it illegal for anybody to even have in their terms of service that they can strip your metadata off. And already, my metadata stays with it. And again, there's a false sense of security here because they're talking about managing this metadata through blockchain. It's going to make people think that my images are more secure and people can't modify them. But really, your only protection, at least in my country, the U.S., your images need to be registered with the copyright office. That's your only legal protection. So without big players like AP, Facebook, Instagram, Washington Post, add your name here, there's just no way that this is going to work because consumers yeah. don't care. Well, and if you get some big players, that's great. But you, as a company, as a corporation, you cannot get everybody on your side. You cannot make everybody across multiple industries all obey you. No. I think that it's a fool's errand. And, and I think that that's what they would need to do to, to make this somewhat universal unless there was any other way. And any other way is every other way. Um, unless you have some federally mandated, uh, you know, a declaration right. that okay, you cannot modify these files, and and I wish that a company in uh, any company in the or a country in the world, I should say, any country in the world, should do this, and then we should see, we should watch them and see exactly what happens too, because if it happens in the UK. What's Facebook going to have to do to anything that's uploaded to the servers in the UK? Well, they're going to have to do this. We're going to have to watch and see what happens to anybody in uh, in London that is uploading photos uh, for that authenticity information and see exactly how that works. It only takes one country for all of the tech companies that still want to exist within that country to then follow suit and say, okay, well, at least for you, we're going to have to do this. But then if we're doing two separate systems and we don't really have to, let's just do this for everybody else else maybe i'm uh, looking through rose colored glasses here but it just no, takes you're, one you're to me you're spot on this this is this is a pipe dream okay i honestly believe that adobe's intentions are good here i don't believe that there's any weird ulterior motive here but the systems are kind of in place to have my attribution follow right now just make it so that it has to stay there right all right. Well, let's uh, let's carry that on to the next story. Also talking about technology that is in front of us every day. Uh, I'm talking about our computers at this point. Uh, article from Petapixel stating that AMD's new 32-core Threadripper CPU promises huge performance 
uh, performance boost for Adobe users. Now, that's such a, a vague blanket statement um, because 32 CPUs, that's oh, that's uh, 64 threads of information that, uh, that any application could use. So... Um, if you have an application that I don't know if it's an actual term, but I always say N core optimized, where it doesn't matter how many cores or threads you have, a, 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 in a system, it will just slice up whatever you're trying to do amongst all of those threads and, and feed it all into the system and use everything that, that the, uh, uh, that the software has at its disposal. And some software does that Adobe premiere, for example, is a great, uh, a great, uh, piece of and software. And it's no that mistake. That's the one that they quoted a percentage on. Yeah, of course. Um, so they quoted a percentage of 47% of a performance boost in Adobe Premiere. They also say a mind-blowing 90% increase in the Cinebench score. <laughs> well, Cinebench is a program that's designed to eke out the best possible performance of hardware in their software that has no real world reference right. of it's just it's a baseline test numbers. between hardware components. It has no no relation whatsoever to, to software because, as you say, piece of software has to be written to use those cores properly. And many of them are written to use cores and use be multi-threaded, but they're not written in such a way to go to 32 cores. And if they are, it's a diminishing return. It's not exactly. linear. It's logarithmic. It drops very quickly on the percentage boost you get. Now, I'm not against having this many cores. I mean, if you're in a server environment, it makes a lot of sense. Or if you're specifically programming uh, your software to use this from the ground up, then you're in good hands. I've used uh, Zarine Stacker for focus stacking, and it uses everything my current system can throw at it. I've got 24 cores and 48 threads across two processors in a machine that I built like six years ago. And some software will use it all. Um, on One software has their, um, uh, their On One resize. And it'll use everything you can throw at it as well. And a high-end OS will, like a, uh, a Windows uh, server. It will, yeah, absolutely. But if I'm trying to focus stack, it's a great example between Zarine Stacker and Photoshop. Uh, Zarine uses everything. Photoshop uses a single core. Maybe it offloads some background stuff to a second thread, but that's inconsequential, really, to, to, to the end game. Uh, and so you just watch that progress bar complete over a very long period of time on one software as they're focused stacking on the GPU, not the CPU. I mean, there are so many ways to do this far more efficiently, even in Photoshop. And I've complained about this before. If I try to save a file, okay, and then it's a big file, say it's like a... a, a uh, a gigapixel image, and it might take it 10 minutes to save a, a TIFF or a PSB file or whatever format it is. And then at the same time, I want to scale it down to a low resolution and save a JPEG. Well, it won't let me save a JPEG file until the first one has been saved. It just won't even queue it up. And if I wanted to save another file, because I'm trying to multitask and make my time more efficient here, and I try to save a different file, regardless of format or whatever else, it won't even start saving the second file. I've got multiple images open, won't save the second file until the first one has finished saving. And let me interrupt you because you made a comment on this post and somebody answered back saying you're complaining because Photoshop doesn't work the way you want it to. What you're saying there can be done. It's called the batch tool. Okay, but the batch tool works on files that are not open. You selected a, a source directory. You select a destination directory. That's a different use model. And the idea of Photoshop is to have an image open and work on it. 
I'm not a software engineer, Steve, but uh, I could imagine that with all of the enhancements and advancements that they give to their software on a yearly basis, why has this been given zero attention when it seems fundamentally like it would be an easy fix? And if it's not an easy fix, what that it's means background is background rendering. Well, it's, it's background rendering. But what I mean is if it's not an easy fix, if this cannot be implemented um, uh, with just a, a simple, you know, send an engineer to go and fix this problem, it means that that back end of Photoshop has so much legacy baggage that it would be just such a mess. Uh, you know, look behind my computer and see the wire jungle of stuff. Yes, it could be clean. I have not bothered to clean it. Whenever I want to fish a wire out of that thing, it takes me two hours when it should take me two minutes. Right. Uh, and so if the back end of Photoshop is like that wire jungle behind my desk, that's a symbol of a bigger problem. And uh, there's a lot of things in Photoshop that's... Uh, subsystems, certain filters and features will be multi-threaded to a point, but never to 32 cores or you know, well, 64 threads uh, inherently there. Well, and, and I found an article that was interesting. There's a company called Punch Technology, and I'm reading from their about page. They build custom PCs for designers, photographers, editors, engineers, technicians, researchers, programmers, animators, scientists, doctors, gamers, anyone hitting high limits, basically, of their system. And this is from 2018, but it's testing Adobe Photoshop CC 2019. So it's not that long ago. There's no way that the source, the, the root source code of, of Photoshop has been completely rewritten since then. The biggest improvement they saw with Photoshop was purely clock speed. When it yeah. came to cores, four cores was good. If you had six cores, it gave you two spare cores for, you know, browsing an email. Eight cores the only advantage to eight cores was that you would usually got a higher clock speed out of it. But here's the deal. Performance gain percentage drops after two cores. So four cores is 25% faster than two cores. When you go to six cores, it's only 8% faster than four. That's what I'm talking about. It drops yeah, and so <laughs> very quickly. And, and if you go to 32 cores, you will have no measurable impact exactly. whatsoever. But what I, I, if I'm building another computer in the next year or two or three, I will be looking very. It, though. Uh, I, I will be very uh, seriously looking at these Threadripper CPUs. Not not even the 32 core. They've got a 24 core version, which might be more than adequate for this stuff, especially because uh, the cost difference is substantial. The uh, 24 core uh, 3960X is $1,400 US. You add the extra cores up to 32 cores, and it goes up to $2,000. Wow. And if there's no benefit in that $600 expenditure, then why would you do well, it? Well, for Photoshop, but you mentioned a stacking program that would yeah. use it. So n none of this is in a vacuum, in other words, right? If you've got apps exactly. that use it, yeah, go for it. But here's another thing that uh, Intel is doing this too. It's not just AMD, but uh, they now have a single core boost feature, which um, if you have uh, the, the base clock uh, starting at 3.7 gigahertz, you can kick a single core up to almost a gigahertz faster than that, 4.5 gigahertz. And probably with overclocking, which these chips are capable of, you can get that even higher. Um, the, the point of that is, if you have this legacy baggage code that you know is only going to exist on a single core, well, then immediately you get that core, which is two threads, by the way. Um, you would get that to give you an increase in performance over the baseline, which I think is very substantial. And the fact that they had that single core boost, uh, you know, if you've got a multi-threaded uh, multi application, that doesn't matter for you. 
But the majority of applications that photographers and content creators are going to be using are not nearly as multi-threaded as we would like. So having that boost is great. Also, it was like 144 megabytes. I I don't have it in front of me, but there was a ridiculous amount of L3 cache um, that's like on-chip memory that that is far faster than any RAM would be on these systems uh, is available shared. I don't know if the entire amount is available to a single core, that information I'd have to, uh, to, to, to dig deeper into. But if you have a single core that can not only get substantially faster than the base clock, and it has access to a substantial amount of on-chip cache to run whatever it's trying to do, there is an advantage when you're using Photoshop, but it's not the advantage that is being claimed here. And I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, And the other advantage here, too, is uh, AMD is the first proprietor of PCI Express version 4.0, which fundamentally is identical to the PCI Express uh, Express. uh, It sounds like I'm drinking here. Uh, Nobody uh, knows. And nobody knows. Uh, and the the idea with PCI Express is it connects all of the fundamental, uh, your graphics card and your SSD and, and all the pieces of your system together. If it has a bottleneck, then so too does your system, especially if you've got a lot of stuff plugged into it. Uh, PCI Express version 4 doubles the throughput of that platform. So that bottleneck would go away if you were hitting against it. A lot of people were not really hitting against the bottleneck on PCI Express 3.1. But you talked about future proofing. And if you know that the technology from Intel uh, with their cross-point SSD technology is just going to get better and better, and graphics cards are going to demand more and more as time goes on, then you want to have that bottleneck uh, loosened up a little bit. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy to see them uh, adapt to well, that. Well, and the other thing is systems, again, nothing is in a vacuum. Systems are not your processor and systems are not your drive and systems are not your bus. Systems are the combination of those. So you can put a 32 core processor in there for $2,000, but put it in a, in a machine with a 5,400 RPM spinning drive. You could put an SSD in, but put your scratch disk on the same drive. There are bottlenecks everywhere. Your goal is not to take a single element of your system and boost it beyond recognition or usefulness. Your goal is to make a system that works in harmony with each other to minimize the potential bottleneck areas. That's All right. Speaking to the choir here, uh, you're totally right. I, I don't think I could have said it better. And if you are looking to buy a new system, take a very serious look at these Threadripper CPUs. They have more PCI Express lanes than pretty much anything else in the consumer market right now. In addition to having more bandwidth per lane, exactly. more cores, the cores are not important, the number of them. The fact that you can have a boost clock and the fact that they are well-engineered is the important factor there. And uh, if we're talking about building a new computer... They're uh, still the chip. It's just not just the number of cores. Exactly, exactly. And uh, you, you wouldn't even need to have the Threadripper. They have their Ryzen CPUs, which is the step down. And even their flagship one of that costs less than these Threadripper CPUs. And the motherboard would cost less. And everything else in the system would be a little bit more affordable. Uh, they're engineered to the same degree. You just don't need that number of cores. Right. All right. Let's uh, let's get off that soapbox because I know that we are both uh, on the same wavelength there. You sent me a link to a story right when I, w- I was actually about to send you the show notes. So I added this one in so that we could talk about it and you take the lead on this. Okay, so this is a court case 
And this is, I want to give this guy credit. His name is Evan Brown. He's an attorney in Chicago, and he deals with technology development, licensing, copyright, trademarks, domain name, all that type stuff. And the website is internetcases.com. And the headline is, does a plaintiff claiming unlawful removal of a copyright management in, of copyright management information have to own a registered copyright? And where this is going before we get into the weeds here is, I mentioned actually earlier, in the U.S., you own the copyright when you take the picture. And if somebody infringes that copyright, that's copyright infringement. It really doesn't matter. The question is, can you pursue it? And based on the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which everybody refers to as DMCA, there are certain areas that are that have a requirement that you can't pursue a civil case unless you have taken your image and registered it with the U.S. Copyright Office. And I register all of my images. I have a walkthrough on it up on my website. Oh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's a really good one. Yeah, it's 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 not hard. It's not super expensive. And really... As my friend Ed Greenberg says, it's your keys to the kingdom. You can be infringed, but not go after somebody because your remedy in any trial is going to be very, very limited if the image isn't registered. If it's registered, it opens up doors like statutory damages and things like that. Well, what this lawsuit was, there was a suit over the DMCA and a specific provision of it. Uh, It's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. 17 USC 1202B. I'll just call it 1202B. And what this does is it prohibits intentional removal or altercation of uh, copyright management information if you know or should know that it will, quote, induce, enable, facilitate, or conceal copyright infringement. So this lawsuit happens and the defendants came up with a rather creative defense. They said the court should completely just throw the suit out and dismiss it because the guy had never registered the image. And provision 411A requires registration. And this wording is key. No civil action for infringement of a copyright in any United States work shall be instituted until pre-registration or registration of the copyright claim has been made in accordance with this title. Now, notice that was number 411A. They're trying to claim 1202B is a civil action and therefore requires registration. And the court said no. And this is wonderful because it means that, well, you might not be able to claim the entirety of the damages afforded to you if you had registered the copyright. There are remedies in uh, in the, the legal structure here that would allow you to recover much more than actual damages. Right. Statutory um, damages. Uh, well, uh, but, but not necessarily entirely so. You wouldn't get the same damages, and uh, neither of us are lawyers. We should state that we right now. We're talking about legal. <laughs> We're talking about legal stuff here, um, but there, I forget exactly the numbers, and I, I had them in my head before, but um, you would be able to get more uh, damages even if you had registered the copyright and somebody tampered or removed with your copyright management information, the CMI in the photograph, um, you would be it entitled to more. And chosen intent. And so basically, in this case, uh, the way that I'm reading it is that you would be entitled to the actual damages plus the additional damages for uh, mucking about with the CMI. 
And that can be substantially more than just what you would have actually licensed a photograph for. And why that's important is because an attorney is unlikely to take a case from you uh, on contingency. A lot of the lawyers that I work with in, in Canada and the U.S. work on a contingency basis uh, where they get a percentage of any claim. They would be unlikely to do that. Uh, because the reward for their effort would be so minimal, actual damages would not be able to afford attorney right. fees. So this would push it over that threshold of now attorneys being able to say, yeah, I'll take that case. I mean, maybe not every attorney, of course, but some of them will. And this allows people, it empowers people to say that, okay, well, yeah, shame on me. I didn't register my copyright. I'm going to go do that right now, especially because I can get a reward from this of X amount of dollars doesn't matter what that's going to end up being, but it's going to be more than what you would get from actually licensing the photograph to begin with more in your pocket and heck use that money to license your photographs. Well, and, and what the court said here was fascinating to me because there was, there's a bit at the end of this article that, that kind of made me perk up. First of all, they said that copyright registration isn't a prerequisite for this specific action because under 1202 B this is not a civil action for infringement. It is rather an action against improper removal of copyright management info. So this right. is what the court is saying is they're not going after you for infringing. They're going after you purely for the removal, which kind of makes that stand interestingly on its own. And the court said that the, the defendant cited court cases in their defense to say, look, these court cases say that registration has to happen. And what the court said was the case law cited by the defendants didn't indicate registration was required. They literally submitted cases that did not support their case. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Oh, joy. Uh, yeah, this is fun. Um, I mean, we, we talk about some legal stuff once in a while on this podcast. And this one, I think, is pretty cut and dry in the sense that it gives us more power as content creators to defend our work. Now, I put a, a, uh, a watermark on all of my low-res images online. It's uh, small. It's uh, in the bottom right-hand corner. You can oftentimes not even notice it. But if you remove it, then that gives me power to defend my work. And Correct. I think that's what everybody should do. I mean, I, I hate getting hit over the head with a big obtrusive watermark on a photograph. It's like, okay, well, if somebody wanted to steal it, they're still going to steal it. But you're, you're ruining the enjoyment of the art from people that are your legitimate followers or your audience. It's like when you go to a movie theater and uh, you sit down and they have the pre-roll that says, oh, you know, uh, please don't steal this movie. Stealing movies is wrong and uh, whatever. They do this. I'm, I don't know if they do this in the U.S., but they do it here in Canada. Yeah. And uh, would that change somebody's mind if they're sitting there with a camcorder or a camera uh, ready to bootleg this movie and say, oh my God, I've just had a change of heart. I had no idea what I was doing wrong. I'm going to go home and rethink my life. No, it's not going to have any impact on that person. They're still going to do it. All it's going to do is annoy the people that have paid the ticket to see the show legitimately and genuinely. And so I don't want a watermark to be obtrusive, but it can be a very powerful tool to defend your work uh, if and when the time comes. And again, it's not required to protect your copyright to have a watermark. But if you have a watermark and somebody sees the watermark and somebody knowingly removes the watermark, that does show intent and it strengthens your case. Again, not a lawyer. This is from what I know from talking to lawyers. 
but in general can strengthen your case and can change the remedy that you get from that case. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, hopefully this kind of case law comes into, uh, you know, uh, proper action for everybody that it would otherwise affect. Uh, I've got a number of cases in the U.S. right now, and uh, I, I can't really talk about the details, but some of them are on unregistered images. And so this this makes me happy. Um, and I, yes, that's a slap on my wrist. I should be registering every single one of my images like you do, Steve. Uh, sometimes they're from, uh, an ancient archive that I didn't think anybody cared about. And then, Oh, look at that. Somebody stole that. Yep. Well, yep. Got to get back to, to those images. Uh, okay. Something else that people might not be happy about. Uh, the final story, Photoshop for iPad is getting terrible early reviews. And terrible, terrible. Oh yes, you know, uh, you know, one of the highlighted ones in the, uh, the the cover image here is zero stars. If I could, the average at the time of writing was two point one out of five stars. Now I'm just bringing this up right now, and it's still two point one after seven hundred and twenty three ratings. So it's not a small number. This is going to be an average consensus, I think, moving forward, and that means that. Nobody likes this. If somebody likes it, they might have just been doing so out of some loyalty to the brand, but I don't even see why. Um, so Adobe, we've known for quite a while that they were trying to roll out full versions of Photoshop onto mobile platforms. But back what four or five years ago, I bought a Microsoft Surface Pro because it was the size of an iPad, but it ran the full version of Windows so that I could run the full version of Photoshop without any hiccups along the way, knowing that Adobe might get to it eventually coming out with something on an iPad or a, a different platform. And uh, I'd just be well equipped up until then. Well, it's here and it sucks. Um, I don't have an iPad to actually test this. Steve, have you tested the software? I've opened it and played with it a little bit. Not, not extensively, not a review level. Um, but I've opened it and played with it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking at the feedback that we're getting here and one of them just jumped out at me. Uh, somebody was just drawing on the UI, uh, in, in a tweet that was embedded in, uh, in the Petapixel article here. And it says like uh, W2F is this, it's in the way. And there's just this random circle. Uh, half of Photoshop is missing, pointing to all of the stuff that we're usually used to having. And then somebody else, uh, or on the same thing, uh, just a different comment says, what's the point um, of a secondary color if I can't use it or swap? And then they point to the right side of the frame and that this u- larger UI is bad. Minimal does not equal u- uh, e- ease of access. And there's just so much missing and so much empty space. And it just feels like they were designing this on a computer screen without actually designing it on an iPad and nobody ever used it on the device well, it was intended to be used on. You got to keep in mind, this is a company that releases software that's cross-platform and identical on both. And that inherently in and of itself, to me, is is an issue because there are strengths in Windows and in Windows 10 specifically. There are strengths in Mac apps, native Mac apps. So Mac users want an app that feels Mac. Windows users want a Windows app. Right. Well, well, I want to distill that a little bit further because Photoshop, the full version on Mac OS and Windows is the same. It's fundamentally identical. That's Uh, my point. uh, But when you get to generic, 
It, it is. But when you're trying to create it on a mobile platform, people want to experience that in a different way. You need a UI that is fundamentally different, even if the features are the same, because it's going to be used in a fundamentally different way. I'm not touching on my computer screen to navigate around things when I'm using Photoshop. No, you, need, you the- need touch targets that are big enough for you to get to them which was some of the early issues with touch versions of Windows. But that's actually my point is what you just said, is this is a company that's not used to designing or a design team that's not used to designing specific to a particular interface. And, you know, there, there was a quote from the chief product officer, 30 years of features dropped on our customers on day one is a recipe for failure. And, and he's wrong. I mean, he's kind of wrong, right? You can strip features out and only release so many of them, but you got to pick the right features. And here's really where the problem comes in. It's what we were talking about multi-threading, by the way. There are 30 years of code in Photoshop and each review, each renewal, each update, they're updating some of the code, but there's still legacy code in there. And so in their defense, taking Photoshop as it sits and just repurposing it onto iPad would have been a failure. Yeah. But when you are missing features that people want in that platform, when you're coming in a world that already has apps like Procreate, you have to nail it. This to me, this is this is the Adobe version of the Canon R. <laughs> you know what? This should have been a uh, slightly d- different analogy, but um, this should have been a test bed for feedback. And that I think is what the uh, EOS R was, uh, even though... Canon might not have intended it to be that. This should have been a public, free, available to everybody beta. Not $10 a month. Well, this should have been, I don't care if you have any interaction with Adobe whatsoever. Let people in on this as a beta, exactly as it is right now, because that feedback you need to make this a success. You put that behind a paywall and people just complain like crazy. But if you gave it to everybody for free and you gathered feedback and you reiterated and you gave it maybe a one year life cycle in beta to continuously improve, advance, add features and build up because this is an MVP, a, um, a minimum viable product uh, in software terms. And an MVP should not be what, what is basically a flagship on the mobile platform. It cannot be that. And so it can be a beta. It can be something that is intentionally label it as like Adobe Labs tests Photoshop or whatever you want to call it. That's I, I don't have my marketing hat on right now, but just make sure that you're not labeling it just Photoshop for iPad. Give it a different name and then maybe rebrand it later so that it's not taking that wonderful heritage that Photoshop has, which has been sullied in recent years. I mean, we just talked about the single threadedness of it, right, but right, right. Um, but you don't take that pedigree and and wrap it around something that doesn't deserve it. Well, and I don't want people to get confused on the price because when you go look at it, it says free. And it is free. You can download it. You can open it. You can use it to get it to get the features that you need to get to really use it as what it's intended to be. There is an in-app purchase for nine ninety nine monthly for Photoshop on the iPad. Now for $9.99 monthly or whatever it is now, I can get the entire photography plan that includes desktop Photoshop, Lightroom. And if you are a photography plan for Creative Cloud member, you get this included. 
But if I get this on my own, it's almost the same cost. There's yeah. there's such a disconnect there for me. And really what it comes down to is two things. A, they overpromised and underdelivered because they've been hitting this so hard that we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And then they underdelivered. But I also want to defend it. This is an editor's choice. There are people. Well, that are hold on. Why? Why is it an editor's choice? Because that came from the very beginning, and I gotta think some money changed hands uh, on the Apple side of things to get that moniker on something that Look, is so it, poorly that's reviewed. Possible. I, I don't know that that's true, but there are some people that are going to play with this app, and it's going to meet their needs. But for people truly coming from desktop Photoshop and trying to say, I can do it on my iPad now, for most of those, it is clearly not meeting their needs. And you are right to state that I don't know for sure. I'm making uh, an assumption on that. But um, it, it seems like it's being thrown in front of people, whether it's good or not. And I think that's the real problem here. I think that if it was a lower key launch, something that uh, kind of was aimed at, hey, you know what? You want to get in on something good here? You want to test this out, get some buzz out and and kind of play like a grassroots kind of upstart for this from Adobe? Uh, they would have had so much more success and so much more public uh, appreciation for the features that it includes rather than disgust for what it is not. Did you see the tweets from uh, the product chief product officer, Scott Belsky? I did, yes. He had a bunch of them. And, and basically, he came out and said, well, this is a version one release in real time. We're learning. And it was a, it was a thread of tweets. Yep. And it was very well worded, except it wasn't so much a recognition that anything was wrong. There was no humbleness to it. Like, okay, we may have, we understand, we're listening to you, we're going to fix it. But it just seemed somewhat disconnected from the 2.1 stars. Yeah. Yeah. And so that disconnect continues. And anybody that wants to experience this uh, Photoshop mobile, go for it. Check it out. I, I I don't discourage you from doing that, but know that it's not going to be anything like the Photoshop you know and love. Not at all. I pulled it up and the interface was somewhat interesting to me. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's the best interface, but again, very little time. It could be I end up loving it. I don't know. Well, we don't know. Time will tell. But uh, it is time then, Steve, to get into our picks of the week. But before we do, where can people find you and uh, your illustrious voice on other podcasts? Uh, my podcast is Behind the Shot. It's at BehindTheShot.tv where we uh, I sit down with one photographer at a time and we dissect one photo. Think of it as interviewing the photo to get a better understanding of why that photographer made the choices that they made. So get inside their mind to, to better understand how they work and, and how you might be able to benefit from it. For me, it's stevebrazel.com. It's like Brazil, but two L's. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Steve Brazel. All right. Thank you, Steve. Uh, picks of the week now. Finally, the end of the show. We did five stories this week. Thank you, Steve, for adding the copyright one in. Um, and uh, we are a little bit over the hour mark at this point. And uh, let's get into it. So I've got I'm, I'm going to go first. Um, I was shooting earlier today, snowflakes, and probably by the time we finish recording, I'm going to go out and do some more of that. But whenever I'm doing macro um, uh, photography, outside of anything that uh, that has spherical surfaces. So uh, water droplets, the eyes of a spider, the shell of a ladybug, anything that has a, a round glossy surface. 
a ring flash will give you a ring flash reflection, a catch light that is somewhat distracting. But in almost every other case, on camera and off, they make a really good off camera light. You just hold it off to the side, get some nice, uh, you know, cultured lighting, however you want to, you know, shape it, which, whichever way you want to do. goosenecks from Platypod. Oh, that's a great way to do it as well. Um, but I'm talking today about a uh, wow. a young a young Nuo YN-14EX2 ring flash. And uh, so this is what I like for photographing snowflakes and a lot of other macro work when I have to run and gun, like I'm physically moving around trying to find a subject worth photographing. Um, it is a direct copy uh, of the Canon MR-14EX2 but it's better. So um, this has a much less diffuse original ring, and it has little magnets that can attach to it that have a diffuser and diffusers in different colors that you could put on the front of the ring. The magnets aren't as strong as I'd like, but it it is a nice touch. Um, And the only other thing that I could say bad about this is that if you want to plug in an external battery into this port on the side of it, um, it doesn't lock in as well as it does on the Canon one. But the cost is about $120, $125 US versus $500 or $600 US for the Canon one. It's you know, significantly less expensive and it's in better in one critical area that makes the Canon flash for me unusable. So both flashes have um, a system built into them that will uh, limit the heat of of the flash to prevent damage, right? Some thermal limiter. Um, Canon, in, in their wisdom did not use a thermal sensor. They used a counter that counts up the aggregate amount of light outputted over the flash over a period of time and associates that with heat. So if I'm outside in minus 15 degrees Celsius weather shooting my flash, I'm getting overheating warnings after like 30 frames. I still get overheating warnings on this young Nuo flash, but when they are legitimately uh, you know, deserved. Right. So when I'm out shooting snowflakes, I do not get an overheating warning. On the Canon flash, the way around it, I have to pop open the battery door while the flash is on, which resets all of the settings, including the counter. Close the battery door, dial back in the settings that I want again, and keep shooting. That is That's the insane. only solution. It's the only solution that I had for that. This one works perfectly fine. And it even works such that if I turn on the modeling lamps, they'll stay on at two different intensities when I'm, uh, when I'm not shooting so that I can always have a little bit of uh, not modeling light rather, but focusing light. Because if you're right on top of the subject, you need these two little lights on the top and the bottom that will just give you a little bit of extra light to make it work. So for the cost, for what it offers, and for the advantages above the Canon uh, ring flash. I'm not using it on a Canon camera. I'm using it on a Lumix camera. Right. I just operate it in manual mode. And um, I, I, it's so often that I hear from people, well, is there a version for my camera? Well, yeah, everyone will work with your camera. Every camera will fire any flash, aside from that weird Sony experiment for a couple of years. Um but the hot shoe is compatible. It'll fire it, but you just have to use it in a manual mode. And for almost all of my macro work, I use my flashes in manual. So the Young Nuo YN-14EX version 2 gets my pick of the week right now. Nice pick. Mine's an easy one, and it's an iOS app. It's an iOS app I've had for a long time, hence the fact that the word classic is in the name. It's called Hipstamatic Classic. And Hipstamatic is an an app that lets you take pictures that are film and lens emulations. So you go in, it used to be that it had a a fixed frame. Now you can actually do 
6.43, 16.9, and you can change the field of view and the framing of the shot and the dimensions, but or, or the ratio, I should say. But Hipstamatic lets you go in and do presets. So you go in and you pick an old film style. Could be a black and white film. Could be a film from the 70s that was a, an odd color uh, cast to it. You go in and you pick a lens and you could pick a lens that was designed in the 40s with a film that was designed, you know, around the disco era. And you get by pairing those together, it does the emulation and you get these really cool shots. My favorite are some of the black and white uh, uh, sets that I've put together, a great lens, really high contrast with a really high contrast black and white film. Some of the presets give you borders as though they look like a Polaroid or um, they have a thin border all the way around, but have the little date printed on the bottom like you used to get in the <laughs> 70s when you took a picture. And it just, you, the thing I love about Hipstamatic and the company that does this <clears throat> is the when you buy it, you've got a good selection. But then you can buy add-on packs. And the add-on packs are other lenses and other films. And there's a ton of the add-on packs, anywhere from a dollar each to $3 each. And you just buy them and start building your presets and building your stuff together. And they're constantly releasing new ones. So well, and it's it's not like it's going to be the cost of buying a roll of film. It's far less than that. I mean, if you're talking about emulating the film era, you're, the, the barrier to entry here is quite low. But I also want to state, before you continue, Steve, that um, this makes photography fun. It doesn't necessarily make the masterpiece of artwork that you might make with your digital SLR, but that's not the point. This is making photography an experience and it's making it fun, much like shooting film would be. Although if you don't want to go through that, if you will just want to do this in your own pocket, because that's the experience that you want to have, I think this is the best software out, out there to do it. It's re it's got some really cool little features. Like it has a manual exposure where you can dial down how long the exposure is. It has a multi-exposure switch where you can do multi-exposures. It even has simulated flash effects based on different types of flashes that existed. And it's $2.99 for the app, and then you buy add-on packs as you want. There is a new one. There is a Hipstamatic 10 or Hipstamatic X. I haven't played with that, and the reason is the packs on that are a monthly membership fee or yearly member. It's, it's so much a month, $2 or something a month, or $25 a year or something like that. And I just don't want to do that. This one still works. And I, I just, I use it all the time. When I'm on vacation and I take my phone and I see a cool barn, I'll pull it out, go to one of my presets, nice black and white preset, take a shot. If it doesn't work, I just choose a different preset and do it again. And there's no post work. Yeah, it, it's fast. It's fun. And I'm not going to say it's the answer for everybody. Um, I, I don't use this app, but uh, but I kind of want to, in a way, just because I want photography to be more fun. And yes, I, I might do it just for my own private enjoyment. I might share it on Instagram or something. But um, it's not going to be something I submit into a contest. It's not something that I will say would be portfolio worthy. Although some people, especially street photographers, might You'd find that very useful. When I, we go on vacation now, I don't take my camera. I only take my phone. And when we drove up the coast of California, we hit some wineries I took some pictures in wine cellars and close-ups of tags on wine barrels with these black and white effects, different ones. I have printed them and they're hanging in my kitchen. And okay, most people think me wrong. Most people think those were taken with my DSLR and I did them in Lightroom. 
It's, <laughs> it's just, and again, it's really what you said. Sometimes you don't want the process. Sometimes you just want to take a picture and have fun with it. And yeah. that's what this was great for. Hipstamatic classic, was it? Yep. And available on iOS, on Android too, maybe? or no? iOS only, I believe. And it's okay. $2.99 in the App Store. All right. Thank you for that pick, Steve. And thank you so much for being on the show again. Always great to have a conversation with you, uh, but also so great to have everybody listening as well. Thank you so much for hanging on to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Now that you've listened to us all, you've got some tips and tricks for gear that you can get, some apps that you might want to have. Uh, it's time to get out and shoot. <laughs>